Greetings, friends, and welcome to another Singing Scientist podcast. I'm really excited today because I'm here in Tokyo with French-Filipino Tokyo-raised Martin LaRue, singer-songwriter who is a dear, dear friend and soulmate, and I'm just excited for you to meet him. Um, We've got a lot to talk about, so why don't we start with... What it was like, um, I, I understand that you grew up and went to international school here, right? So can you tell us a little bit about how you grew up in Japan, you lived in Japan, but you'd never really felt like you were quite at home. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, so how I came to be in Japan is, I would say, kind of either a chance or a fluke, because my parents were here right be- right before I was born. Uh, met here and decided to have me so and I just grew up here so yes I grew up in Japan but at the same time I grew up in a very simultaneously international but also very niche community so it was kind of a bubble but it was also kind of a window to many different uh, many different cultures and whatnot so I'm French and Filipino my dad's French my mom's Filipino Um, I grew up in a predominantly Filipino household though we spoke English Um, at home Um, and so I have Filipino values instilled in me from childhood and my French side of the family wasn't really there so much growing up so I did a lot of homework on my own just to figure out what it meant to be French and stuff like that at the same time I went to international schools and over there it's its culture of its own So we spoke English, but no matter where in the world you came from, it was sort of you spoke English with an American accent and you all knew the same things and you all studied the same things. But then you go home and it's a different world Mm -hmm. because your family is still your family and they're still from where they're from. And for me, it was always this weird, I don't know, it was just like going to many different worlds in the same day. So it Mm -hmm. it was interesting. And I got a lot of insight as to you know, what other cultures were like and what it meant to be Filipino and what it meant to be French. But at the end of the day, I grew up in so many different environments that I don't really know which one is my own. Mm. You would think that that would give me two communities to be part of, that that I would be born into two communities. But it felt more like I was being excluded, that I had one foot in each community and therefore I was only half in each community. And in Japan... I don't know how it is in other peop- in other countries, but um, the words we use when we talked about a mixed-race person is that they're half this and half that. Um, growing up, that's what I used to call myself, half French, half Filipino. But the psychological connotations of growing, the, growing up identifying as half something just tells you that you're not a complete person. Yeah, we we talked, you and I, earlier about this um, idea that one of your therapists told you about, you're not this or that, this and that. Can you explain that concept? Because it blew me away, and I think people would really benefit from hearing this. Um, so the my therapist, I, I go to her for, you know, depression and things like that. And I think I told her once after, when I was in a dark place, I was telling her, you know, I feel safe. And I'm in no immediate danger, but I'm incredibly lonely and I'm sad. And she told me to re- to reword that sentence by replacing but with and. Um, and so I said, um, so I'm safe, I'm in no immediate danger, 
and I'm lonely and I'm sad. And as I was saying that, that just blew my mind. And because I was like, whoa, I'm allowed to be contradictory things. And then later I looked back on it. I looked back on it and I thought to myself, well, yeah, we're humans. <laughs> we're very contradictory. Right. Um, and um, same thing with sexuality. I will say that I am a gay man. That's what I am. But that said, um, I do think sexuality is a fluid thing. And my sexuality in particular has gone through, or I've noticed it, move from many different places to another. So while I simplify my sexuality by saying I'm gay, I know that there's things that other people might not deem um, traits of a gay man. And I don't mean in behavior or anything like that because that's just arbitrary. But in terms of what you're attracted to, who you're attracted to, those kinds of things. I've been attracted to a few women in my life, but that doesn't change the fact that I identify as gay. And who knows what will happen in the future. Even just interests and in religion, actually. Um, I might be the most unchristian Christian <laughs> in the world. Yeah. And also, the um, I mean, I'm not an atheist at all, but I empathize with atheists. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think there's validity in every religion just because it's a different way to connect with God. So, I don't know, I might be the most atheistic theist the most theistic atheist <laughs> or whatever you want to call it but whatever it is i'm a mix of everything so um one of the themes of this podcast is the intersection of identities being gay and christian and um where can gay christians find identity belonging community uh because uh, the gay community is often anti-religious and the Christian community is often anti-gay. And so um, can you tell us a little bit about your religious experience and how that has either helped or harmed you in terms of finding a community? I guess what sorts of realizations you may have had along the way that have helped you um, do that? Because, because I think this is something that lots of people struggle with and there's really no one talking about it, right? Yeah, the idea of religion is really interesting. Um, so I was raised Roman Catholic because that's, you know, the Philippines is a Roman Catholic country, although there are different sections of Christianity and there's even a Muslim community over there. Um, and for me, I grew up in a family that wasn't really religious but had very strong Catholic values. Um, and then... I went to a Catholic elementary school growing up where not every student was Catholic, but the school was operated, you know, by a convent. Um, and our teachers were sisters and it was that kind of school. And we had religious studies that everybody studied. So I grew up knowing, you know, I, I grew up, grew up knowing, knowing the Bible um, and studying the Bible and also the fact that Philippine family values are strongly interconnected with the values preached about in the Bible. Um, I was raised in that. Um, when you're around 10 or 11, you don't really have concrete ideas of what it is you're against, but you just sort of feel that something is wrong, right? Yeah. Yeah. Something's not clicking. Um, and I think this was before I even realized I was gay because this was before you know my sexuality 
um, came, came to the forefront. So I was just sensing that something was wrong or that I just wasn't clicking with the Catholic idea of God and how people should connect with God. Um, and so for a while I called myself atheistic because, um, well, it's not that I didn't believe in God, but it's just that I didn't believe that he was good at that time. Um, which is not, I identified as atheist, but if you believe that God is not good, you still believe in God, so that's not really atheist. Right. <laughs> um, so I am whatever that was. But, uh, and, and my mom sat me down and talked to me, and she was like, look, um, it's fine if you don't want to be Catholic, but you need a religion because a religion is a moral compass. And now I think that's bullshit, really. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on here. but Yeah, yeah. this will be the first uh, explicit episode. Thank you. Oh, man, if I had known that, I'd have gone with something worse. No. <laughs> <laughs> the date is done, yes. Um, so uh, she told me, you know, whatever religion you choose, it, it will give you a set of values that you need to live your life. Now, I don't agree with that. But back then, you know, she was my mom, so I listened to what she was saying. So I decided to um, study a bunch of other religions, read up on a lot of other religions. And this was around when I was 16 or so. Trying to find um, a school of thought that made sense to me and how I connected with God or the universe or whatever was out there. Um, and I read a lot about um, other sects of Christianity, and I read a bit about Buddhism, Muslim, um, pagan religions, even things like Wicca and things like that. And I found that although they were very, very different religions and the practices were very different, um, they still had similarities in connecting to a power greater than they. Um, and that's when it, that's when it hit me little by little that you know, regardless of what is out there, regardless of what God actually is, um, we all have our own individual ways to connect to a higher power. Mm -hmm. And whatever shape or form that God takes or the universe takes or however we call the higher power, um, what matters ultimately is how we personally connect to that power. Um, and I guess this is why so many religions exist is because everyone has their own way of doing it. What What is the pulse that you feel? Or or how do you go about... Uh, are, are there any things that you rely on, either spiritually or otherwise, that um, are kind of trustworthy signals that something is right for you or something is the right thing to do? Um, so I can't really speak on how God works with everyone, uh, but personally, my experience with God and um, reading the signs that I'm given um, have just been that I feel that whenever I act in my own healthy interests um, and whenever I make positive use of the aspects that I've been given, the traits, skills, talents, and even history and background that I've been given, um, whenever I use them in a healthy manner, I find that opportunities come, that um, doors open. And I find that whenever I go into 
a state of negating everything that I was born with or even just certain aspects of what I was born with, sexuality included, that doors have closed for me or that pain has ensued or hardships come. So I sort of feel that at least God has designed my life in a way that I know for sure that I'm doing the right thing, that I'm acting with him in my heart because the world responds to it positively. The, or my environment um, responds, to, responds to it positively. Um, now, I'm not really sure how that would affect anybody else because I think that God appears to different people in a way that makes sense to them. Um, I've known a lot of atheists who have acted with the idea of God in their hearts, and I know this is kind of contradictory. And some of them have been very anti-religion, but then I look at the deeds they do, and I look at, you know, I look at what they do in the world, and I see a lot of God in what they do. Now, at the same time, I've seen, you know, God-fearing Christians or people from other religions act with their ego in their hearts and not with God in their hearts, and to me, that just made me wonder as a child, what makes one more righteous than the other? When the holy texts would say that a person who doesn't believe in God, regardless of what they do, will be condemned. And those that believe in God, you know, because of that fact alone, will be saved. For me, that didn't really make sense. Um, so I don't know, watching that, it just made me think that we have a collective reality that we share, all of us, but I do feel that everyone has their own reality and every reality is just as valid. And in that theory, with that theory in mind, how God relates to every person is different and every way that he relates to us is just as valid. At least that's my take on it. Yeah, I think often, because most societies um, implicitly encourage people to partake in some sort of religion, usually a particular religion, and because they punish you in, in certain ways um, societally, if you don't, I think it probably takes more authenticity, usually, to be an atheist. And so it takes a special kind of strong, authentic, honest person to even broadcast the fact that they are, right? So it's I think that given that circumstance... Um, I really respect the atheists that I know, especially because of the flack they get for it. So let's switch gears. When did you begin your journey in music? And was there like an inciting event? Did something inspire you? When did you begin? I mean, I've always loved music. Music was always around when I was growing up. Um, but for me, when I first started to um, use it as a way to express myself, when something clicked along the way when singing songs felt less like singing a song and more like speaking a language um, is when I feel that I started developing an interest in make in performing music as opposed to just being a fan um, and I think that all changed when I was 12 or 13 when I got my first guitar and I started learning you know basic chords and this was before you know, YouTube and before ultimateguitar.com, <laughs> which everybody uses to start yeah. 
but um that's when i realized that there's magic to singing and performing music as opposed to just um just singing for fun like at a karaoke or something so that's when i started developing an interest in music i've listened a lot and then that just sort of changed the way in which i saw music and so i started writing songs little by little you know uh, teenage love songs at first and then as i gained more life experience i just found that talking about them just didn't do it for me so i put them into lyrics put them into poems that then became songs and things like that um and then i i kept kept at it for a really long time and just thinking that it was a hobby of mine but then when i finished school and started getting out in the world i started performing at bars and cafes in tokyo and performing the stuff that i'd written and my own versions of songs that were popular at that time that made sense to me and i realized that i was doing it for fun in the beginning and then when people started responding to it is when i think i decided that this was something worth making more of a part of my life now you've struggled as i understand it to make it a central part of your life and and you've had some different career trajectories along the way. And I understand that now you're in a really good place, but it wasn't always easy to make that work in your life. Can you can you share a little bit about that journey? So I did not grow up in a financially privileged household. And so for the longest time, I've just been trying to support myself. And so I, I got into a magazine company really young. And for 10 years... I was working in, you know, the writing field, the um, the publishing field, doing odd jobs here and there, and none of it related to music, really. I had odd gigs here and there of paid music uh, gigs, but mostly I was, you know, a writer, an editor, a translator, things like that. And I think a couple of years ago, I just realized that I shouldn't be, that my what I wanted to work for was to support a life in music for me. And I realized that work was, one, detracting uh, from my music by not giving me the time to do it, and two, entrapping me in the cycle of working to make money and making money to work, to pay the bills so you can work more. And I just realized it wasn't the life for me. It would be one thing if my ultimate passion was, you know, writing or editing or working in publishing, but it wasn't. So I decided to, and this is, again, uh, this goes back to my connection with God. When I decided to quit uh, my, com- my, my position as editor at the, ma- at the magazine company I used to work for, um, I had another job lined up where it was a job to sing to children. It was a children's entertainment company, and so I was going to sing to children for a living. However, it was a two-month audition process or interview slash audition process and they put me through many things um and so when i quit that company there was two months in between that and my next job and i was just wondering how i was going to make it and as if to say that this was the right thing to do i got a big gig doing voice work for this company that was creating i don't know some entertainment educational material for kids 
And so I did a very easy job for them that paid me enough to take care of me for two months. And then at the end of those two months, I was done with the audition interview process and was working at this next job. And now I get to manage my time. I get to do more music while making, you know, a decent living um, singing to kids. And yeah, I mean, singing to kids, I don't think was ever my calling, but it was more in line with my truth um, and my ethics. Something my voice teacher, Nicholas Lauren, says, um, he says many things, but one of the, th- one of the things he, he has told me in my own personal journey has been that you can't have your uh, entree if your plate is full of hors d'oeuvres. And so, <laughs> and that can be interpreted in many different contexts, of course. Um, but do you think that, basically, I think what you're saying is that you needed to clear space in your life. You needed to have the feng shui, if you will, that there was room for this new thing to step in. And, I, and it was like, you're being authentic. You're knowing that this was not right for you at that company and leaving it that sort of allowed God to work and give you something else. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think so. I think you verbalized it better than I could. But, I mean, it makes sense. I think feng shui is real in either a spiritual or even a psychological sense. Because if you clutter your life with things you don't need, how is how are the things that you need going to, like, where do they fit in your life? Um, and we think of ourselves as very infinite, but our schedules are made up of blocks of time. And our ener- and our abilities are made up of, you know, spurts of energy. How much energy do we have in a day and how much can we burn? Um, so, yeah, all we are are blocks of time and calories, really. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I love this, um, this idea. Actually, I recently read a book called uh, Essentialism by Greg McKeown. And he, Greg McKeown talks about it. Rob Bell talks about it in his podcast. It's just, I think everyone's coming to this realization in this this age of instant uh, information on the internet. We're totally drinking from the fire hose, as you will. Um, and we have to come to terms with the fact that we have a certain number of ATP molecules <laughs> we, can, we can actually make in a day. And um, it is not possible to do it all. Um, and so I think what I hear you saying is that we need to be deliberate about what takes up our energy. Like we, we want it to mean something. We want it to build towards something. And if you're not careful, especially now with, with all the technology and distractions in life that we face every day, it's really easy to just let that energy get taken away and sucked up by things that don't ultimately matter at all. It, it kind of, it reminds me of that metaphor. You know how before you board a flight, they give you the whole safety precautions thing and how they say that before you can, you know, in case the um, cabin runs out of oxygen, before you can take care of anyone else, you need to put your gas mask on. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true with with life too. We like to put a negative spin on selfishness, but ultimately you have to take care of yourself first before you can take care of others. Um And I do think that you have to live a life that nurtures you so that you can in turn nurture others. So has your journey with uh, exploring different religions and spiritualities, has that informed your music at all? Or does that come out in any way in any particular songs? Um, I don't think 
religion explicitly has come out in my songs, but I do think that because I believe that God is present in just about everything and everyone, there is an element of God in every story that I tell, because how can it not? It's like we don't talk about air in stories, but we know it's there. And we know that every character we read about is breathing it, mm -hmm. even though it doesn't say, and now he breathed in, and now he exhaled. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a really boring book of it. <laughs> but I do believe the same is true for God. And in my stories, I mean, I talk about, you know, heartbreaks. I talk about falling in love. I talk about um, my battle with mental illness and depression and things like that. But those are things that God has put into my life for reasons. So you, you, you said you've had struggles with depression and mental illness, and I think that that's very, very common um, and underappreciated um, and underserved in the world right now. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your journey with that um, and uh, maybe pr provide some of the hope that you've seen and... Um, and also tell the story of your song, which is related to this, Chasing Comets, which uh, is just a, an awesome piece. Let, let us know a little bit about that. Um, so it's a really funny story. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Chasing Comets is a story I wrote while I was, uh, I had a really, I was going through a really rough time uh, with, just a Cliff Notes version of my journey with mental illness. It's related to a lot of trauma uh, stemming from childhood, but also chemical imbalances. And one day, I think on a particularly bad cycle of depression, I climbed up to the rooftop of my apartment building that I was living in at the time. Um, and I was just sort of looking at the stars and then looking down at people. And I saw some child, I think it was a little girl, um, making a wish on a star, you know, something really innocent that all children do. And in my cynical state of mind, I was just thinking she's spraying on a star that died a million years ago. Mm. It's never going to answer her wish. Mm. And then I started thinking about, well, if that star knew what was happening right now, would they appreciate um, being wished to when they were dead. Mm. Um, and then I started thinking about, you know, if I were to jump right now, which I was planning on doing that day, um, and if someone were down there telling me not to jump, would they know what I was going through? And then I just mused on that idea for a little while, envisioning it because I'm a very visual person. And then this idea for this song came to me, and I decided to go back down to my room and write it. And then by the time I finished writing it, I was too tired to go back up. And so I slept and woke up the next day and, yeah, didn't do it. So it was as if, yeah, it was as if I was led to that state just so I could write that song mm. and then being pushed away from it. I know why comments come this way To crash into the destination The world looks peaceful from the sky The power of imagination I felt the flames that tread behind 
guess I'll have to call it one more time. Another sip of Haley's wine. A heightened state of inebriation. The answers that we hope to find. I thought to be in consolations, but do they ever stop to be the wish? Some days I dream of chasing comments Oh, so good. I love that song. Is it basically the way it was when you wrote it, or have you changed it at all? Um, I think there was a first draft of it where I added in a line that just was quite irrelevant to the rest <laughs> of the song. Um, but I think for the most part, it was what it was. Is art equal parts therapy and communication, or, or how do you experience that? I think for me, the process of writing it is communication, but the process of performing it is catharsis and it's healing. Mm. Um, which is why when I, for example, rearrange another person's song that somehow speaks to me, and I interpret in a way that communicates to my soul, that heals me. Um, that's a very healing process for me. It's not my words, but the way I choose to perform that is a very healing process. So our very logical, very mechanical world tells us that we're not allowed to feel certain things and that if something is wrong with us, we have to fix it. But the thing is, as humans, we're very imperfect and stuff just happens in our lives and it affects who we are and it affects our health mentally or physically and so for other people or you know our external environment to negate that just hinders our healing process so when we listen to a song or read a book or watch a movie or just absorb any art form that validates our darkness it no longer ceases to be something that continues to harm us internally, but something that is acknowledged and thus given the room to breathe and to heal. Um, I read an article not too long ago about the psychology between horror movies, um, horror movies and why people find such catharsis watching horror movies. And it's because horror gives them safety, but also allows them to feel tremendous fear and tremendous terror while being safe and allows them to, I guess, just feel something extreme while knowing they can't be harmed in doing so. And I think we're drawn to that just as people. That's why we consume what we consume. Okay, gay man. How is being gay in Tokyo? And what has your experience been here? Has it been difficult to find kindred spirits in the gay community? How is dating? Tell us everything. <laughs> Um, well, TLDR, I'm single. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think dating is hard in general, but the nature of Tokyo, I think just makes it a little bit harder to date here. Tokyo is a very niche place for the LGBT community because, um, we only have one small district, uh, where the LGBT community gathers, which also functions predominantly as a nightlife district. So in the daytime, there's really no businesses going on, no nothing. It's just a place that we all convene to at night 
at the bars and the clubs. So you kind of have to be an extroverted nightlife person to be in that community. And then the only other medium we have really is, you know, dating apps and hookup apps like Grindr and Tinder and all that. But then again, they cater to a certain kind of des need or desire. <laughs> um, and yes, it rhymes with text. Um, <laughs> um, so there's that. And so if all you want, if you want to do the whole dating thing, if you want to get to know people and see if that, if a relationship can come out of it, what really are your options? And I'm, I'm more of an introvert. You know, a lot of people say they're ambiverts or an extrovert introvert. No, I'm 100% an introvert. I love people, but I also can't be around them too long. Um, although I was uh, as a, on, a, on the same um, idea about extroverts and introverts. Someone was talking to me once about how New York was a very extroverted city. And I responded by saying, Tokyo is an introvert trying so hard to be an extrovert. <laughs> <laughs> And I think the same is true for the LGBT community here. It's, um, it doesn't really leave much space for introversion. And so all, all it means is that extroverted LGBT people in Japan have their way of meeting people. Mm -hmm. And even then, a lot of them have told me that they have issues connecting. Mm -hmm. So where does that leave the introverted LGBT folk here? Yeah. Um, it just means that the rest of us... and the LGBT community in the world, much less in Tokyo, um, has many different kinds of people in it. Mm -hmm. um, we have people of color. We have people of faith. We have people of different, you know, social statuses. And then we also have people of different degrees of health. Um, but that doesn't negate our, you know, our being in and the LGBT community, it just means that we're on a different spectrum of it and we need to be heard too. Right. And I, I feel the same way. I mean, um, and I think as you were hinting at the work of the extroverts of our community has been so good, so necessary for the types of rapid cultural change that we've seen. So it's not to negate any of that. It's just to say, um, especially for those those of the LGBT people out there who are like us, you're not alone. So what, uh, what did you learn that you're trying to articulate in the song Waiting by Hachiko? Um, uh, my first love. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, my second love, my first proper boyfriend, uh, he was, what I learned from that song, that song is pretty much a meditation of letting go and accepting. So what, uh, I think some of our listeners probably don't know, what, what is Hachiko? Um, and what is the story of, of this wonderful creature? So Hachiko, uh, Hachiko Square is a place in one of Tokyo's busiest train stations. It's a statue of a dog and a lot of people tend to meet there. It's it's a popular meeting point for people who meet in the city. Um, now, Hachiko himself was a dog in post-war Japan. He was an Akita dog who was owned by a professor at a university here. Um, and every day, Hach Hachiko and the professor were very close together. And every day, Hachiko would see his master off at Shibuya Station. 
um, while he went off to work. And then he would wait for his master to come home and they would go home together. They were that close. Um, and one day the professor uh, experiences a heart attack that kills him while he is at work. And Hachiko was just there waiting, waiting, waiting for his master to come home. And he never did. And the people in that in the community had noticed that he was waiting for his master who had passed away. And they tried to rehouse him. They tried to take him away. And he would just find a way to come back to that station every single time. And they would feed, you know, the passersby who knew him would feed him, you know, sticks of fried chicken and things like that um, just to sustain him. And then one day he died while waiting, never knowing what happened to his master. And then they erected that statue for him. So it it's just, f for me, I'm also an animal rights activist just because I feel they have as much right to be in this world as we do. Um, and I also think that they show a very pure way of loving and of connecting to other people and of protecting their own. Um, so Hachiko's story really re resonated with me. Now, when I was uh, dating my boyfriend, uh, we felt, I felt that he was drifting away from me for a really long time. And so he went away to Portland, where he was from, Portland, Oregon, um, to go away for the holidays to see his family, and I was here. And I, was sen I sensed that when he came back, things would be over for us. And then he did come back after New Year's, and I went over to his place, and he told me that, you know, we should end it. And so we did. And then a few months later, he sends me a text. And all this time, I was going through therapy. I was, you know, not because of the breakup, but because it triggered so much. Um, codependence issues and things like that and all that good stuff <laughs> and uh meaty stuff, meaty stuff. <laughs> the stuff songs are made of <laughs> and self-help books yeah. uh, <laughs> and uh four months later i was actually anticipating the day i had to say goodbye to him for good i didn't know if i was going to see him again but i just somehow kind of knew and so I thought about that last scenario that we'd have. And then he messages me out of the blue, and he was like, so I'm leaving Japan. I'm going back to Portland, and I still have some of your stuff that I'd like to give back to you. And I still had some of his stuff, I think a CD and something else, a shirt, I think. And so I said, okay, um, I'd I have some of your stuff too that I'd like to give back. And he said, okay. Um, this is my last day in Japan before I have to fly out. Uh, where would you like to meet? And I said, um, I just said Hachiko. So I said, is Hachiko good? And he said, okay, I'll meet you there. And when we made plans to meet, the song, just this song, Waiting by Hachiko, just came to mind. And I thought, how apropos.
seen this shade of blue Reflect my humble face I was haunted by the specter of your gaze Anchored by your stones I've sunk in deep Crawling to the steep where it rains so that I may wash me clean for the fame that would wear off my no seam living in casualties not where we ought to be I hope life treats you well Look up to the sky But jet trails rushing in And I close my eyes But yet the picture stays So many conversations A window shopping through Why does everyone keep talking about you? So let's talk a little bit more literal <laughs> um, about vocal technique, because that's something I'm very interested in. And you and I kind of, we talked about this earlier as well, that we have had different journeys in the sense of kind of going in opposite directions. You start with, started with your emotion and have sort of been adding technique on top of it and, and rewiring some things. Whereas I think I started with the more logical, technical things, because that's just sort of my brain. I'm a, I'm a writer, logician. And so um, I kind of did, did the technique thing first. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about um, your journey with singing fr from like uh, from a technical perspective? What sorts of things help you? What sorts of things have you learned as a singer that have helped you su to sustain and reach your goals and mastery of your craft? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, performance performing in front of people has given me the confidence I need to explore my voice more. Mm. Um, without it, I think I would have just not been able to explore technique, explore the way my voice works. You know, I realized that if I try things a certain way, my voice came out a certain way. 
and I realized that my voice actually has many shades to it, and everybody's voice does. And then through performance, uh, and I still wasn't able to afford, you know, training, vo proper vocal training, because in Tokyo, finding one, finding a vocal trainer is like impossible. It's also impossible in New York, believe it or not. <laughs> it's, well, sorry to cut you off a second, but what I have found is that you, you walk into, you know, it doesn't matter. They can be the top, uh, top name in the city. Everyone can recommend them. And my almost universal experience has been I enter a lesson with someone new and they immediately start prescribing. They say, um, okay, let's do this exercise. And then they explain the exercise and demonstrate it. And then let's go. And that I, I taught beginning lessons very briefly when I was in South Carolina. And it never occurred to me to prescribe right away. What it occurred to me to do was to say, what do you normally do to warm up? Let's hear what you do. Let's hear where you're at. Let's hear your raw material. And instead, all these teachers are like superimposing their idea of what you should sound like before they have even discovered your voice. Now, of course, my teacher in Michigan is an exception. Um, he's amazing. But um, is, is that what you're kind of dealing with in Tokyo? I mean, finding one that one connects with you and understands you and two knows their craft and three is able to communicate that to you, and four that you can afford, <laughs> is is it feels like a lot to ask for sometimes. Um, and for me personally, it's like finding a therapist. You have to find one that knows you, that has dealt with what you deal with, and two knows how to treat you. And I've dealt with therapists in the past where I walk into their office, and before I can even explain my situation, they ask me if I'm taking any medication. That's exactly like a lot of the vocal coaches I've seen here. You come in and you're like, okay, so I sing this. And they're like, mm, so you should do this. And I was like, but, and they're like, no. <laughs> you're like, no, but, and. <laughs> exactly. And. No, and. Here's what you're going to do. <laughs> um, in fact, one of the vocal coaches I've seen here is a, is a big jazz fan and prescribes jazz to every musician and singer that comes to her, no matter what their background is. If you're in a death metal band, you come in and you sing Coltrane. Because the universal, unanimous agreement among all vocal musicians across the world is that the foundation should be jazz? <laughs> yes, exactly. Think of all the structure there is in jazz. <laughs> um so yeah, that's been my relationship with vocal coaches here. So it was hard for me to get the training I wanted. So same thing I've done all my life is just I learned through experience. And I've also learned that, you know, my biggest strength is the tone of my voice. And so all the techniques I need to learn should be to bring that out. And I've also learned that my weakness is breath support, just because I have breathing problems. Um... And I needed to find ways to sing in spite of them or use what I'm able to do in terms of breath to support my singing. Um, so I've learned that through experience, but I don't didn't know how to technically apply that to singing. And fortunately, I was able to get a coach like just to give me tips and guide me on my way. So what concept do you bring I, I want to I'm curious about three different things do you have any do you ever address in your singing or in your practicing um, one breath control 
Um, how do you address it? What, like, what should it function like? That's that's question number one. Second question is about vowels. Do you do any vowel work, or um, have you thought very deliberately about uh, how to sing certain vowels in certain pitches? And the third one is um, is larynx. Do you think about keeping a low larynx, or do you deliberately do a high larynx? Do you have any thoughts about laryngeal position? So the first one is breath, vowels, and larynx. Um, so let's start with breath. When I sing, I mostly try to make sure that I'm not um, letting out too much air at the same time, and I think that's been my biggest challenge in my singing journey, is that when I sing, I tend to let to inhale more air than I need, uh. and to use more air than I need. Um, and that has been to my detriment. Well, that's why y- your friends and I all say that, um, no, Martin, he doesn't need any reverb. His voice has reverb all by itself. <laughs> you have this like breathy, spacious sound that's actually very, very beautiful. Thank you. Um <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, a lot of people say that, you know, when I start singing, they're like, is this a recording? I think it's just because of the reverb that the breath, but it's just breath. It's just breath. (laughs) Um, But I've just been trying to make sure consciously through practice that I am taking in only a sufficient amount of breath for what I want to do. Is there a particular exercise that helps you do that? Uh, There is. There is this exercise one coach had me do where it was to purse my lips and just create a very small um, hole in my lip. Like as if you were sucking in through a straw? Yes, but without the straw. Because okay. um, I think standard straws um, ha- make way for too much air. Yeah. Okay. Um, so something slightly smaller than a straw. Mm-hmm. Like a straw for a juice pack or something like that. Yeah. Um, and it allowed me to understand how much air my lungs can actually hold and um, what was necessary for me. And I realized that typically when I breathe in daily life, um, my lungs actually don't carry all that much air. And so I think it does affect how I overcompensate for that when I, when I think about my lungs while singing. Okay, so that's breath, and that's something that's helping with breathing. What about vowel work? Do you, uh, do you connect, or have you ever done any, anything with vowels? Um, not extensively. Um, a lot of the vowel work I've done um, came as a result of doing musical theater, just because enunciation is key. And in the music I've done in the past, um, I just sort of mouthed words as if I'm speaking, and I'm not the most good at enunciating. I'm not the best at enunciating in daily life. Um, so a lot of the vowel work I've done has been through musical theater, um, and it's helped me a lot by the exercises I've done in terms of opening the mouth, making sure that air is um, expelled appropriately depending on what vowel you use and depending on the shape of your mouth when you make certain sounds. Um, that's helped me a lot, but I can't say I've, been, I've done too much vowel training. Okay, and finally, what about larynx? Do you think about la- laryngeal position? I'm starting to. I didn't used to in the past, but I I tend to like to keep a low larynx when I try singing just because it just helps clear the passage for me, um, the passage of air. Um, And I do find that it's easier for me mentally to to disperse the fear of high notes when I keep a low larynx 
just because it keeps the rest of my body calm and therefore it keeps my head calm. So it makes the high notes come out more naturally without fear. But that's something I have to be conscious about. How do you accomplish a low larynx? Like if you think, oh, my larynx is creeping up or my throat's feeling tense or or like my, my larynx is about to shoot out my nostrils. <laughs> you listeners know what I'm talking about. Um, how do you actually accomplish it technically or physically? Uh, for me, it's uh, visualization. Um, I tend to visualize. I'm a very visual person, as I said before. So I just like to visualize um i like to visualize the fact that my chest is being pulled down that my larynx and my lungs are just being pulled down to the ground whenever i try to um when i try to hit high notes and there was um a visualization technique introduced to me by someone I, uh, by a singer i was talking to about the concept of pulleys where if a note goes higher um, the other part of you goes lower. And so I've just tried to apply that into my visualization where if the note goes higher, it means the rest of me goes lower internally. And so I visualize that. It's helped me a lot, but it still feels unnatural. So I'm trying to find ways to just make it come more naturally to me. So in terms of how do you figure out what's working for you and what doesn't, if it serves you, if it helps you accomplish what you want to do, then yeah, and I've all I've you've said it earlier as we were talking about something else, but you come from you come to it from a place of technique, and are applying layers of emotion. Whereas I come at I come at it from the opposite end, and I feel that every note that I've hit successfully has been fueled by emotion. But that said, because I've felt too much or too little emotion at certain parts, there are bum notes or my voice cracks and things like that. So I don't always have the right support. So training is good for me in that sense in that it helps me accomplish, it helps me convey the emotion I want to uh, to express. Oh, this has been such a great discussion. And um, I think we're probably out of time by now. So uh, before we go, I really wanted my listeners to hear this song, um, Find the Light, which is one of your, is it your newest or one of your newest songs? Okay, and it, it, could you explain a little bit about it, a little bit what lies behind the song before we play it and check out? Um, as with most of my songs, it came from a dark place. <laughs> How could it be otherwise? I know, right? Um, but it was coming, fr- it, I, I was going through a depressive phase and just trying to find sense of it all. Um, and you know how they say you have to fake it till you make it? So same thing with depression, you just kind of have to have a belief that things will get better in spite of everything that contradicts it. And this was around the time that, you know, the world was going to shit politically. And so I, I looked at my own immediate environment and nobody was there. Uh, not many people. I shouldn't say nobody because I have great people in my life. But, you know, there was that the sense of loneliness and isolation. And then I look out at the world and there didn't seem to be any redeeming qualities of what was going on around me at that time. Um, and so I was like, then why do I have to put up with this struggle? What awaits for me at the end of this cycle? Why should I get help? And so I just said, you know what? I need to tell myself that things will get better. I need to remind myself of the good that's in the world. And I need to remind myself that every struggle I have now 
will ultimately be for my betterment in the long run. It's beautiful. So let's listen to this song. Before we do, um, do you have any shows coming up? I know you have a SoundCloud. Um, where can people find you? Where can they listen to your amazing music? Um, at the moment, only online at SoundCloud for now. Um, I'm in the process of trying to make sure, trying to find the right people to help me record my first EP. Um, I have shows coming up, uh, which you can uh, learn more about on my face mu Facebook music page, which is Martin LaRue Music. Um, and you can listen to some of my songs uh, on my SoundCloud, which is soundcloud.com slash Martin LaRue. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being with me today and, and spending this time together. It was just a, a really a pleasure for me. So um, this is Martin LaRue. Look him up and, and watch this one because he's going big places. Um, we'll, we'll finish out with the words of Richard Rohr, as always. The best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. Here is Martin LaRue's Find the Light. When the world is dark, it's still illuminated by a star, a spark that's waiting for you once you've won this fight. And I try to find the light. When the world is cold, there's still a fire burning bright and gold. I'm told is burning strong to guide you through the night and I try to find the light try to find the light until the break of day that's breaking away until I find the light you feel alone and far away from everything you've known you've grown and it gets lonely up on greater heights when you try to find the light when you're on the mend there's someone waiting just around the bend who walks a path that's coming in plain sight as they try to find the light try to find the light until the break of day and though I stop and stare into a world that doesn't seem to care you're there and here on out, we walk it side by side. And in you, I find the light. And in you, I find the light.